0: Have a seat. And as you're taking your seat, uh, first of all, welcome. Happy Easter. It's great to be together today. And uh, we're going to open God's Word today. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, maybe you're visiting and and, um, and you didn't bring one, that's okay. We've got one for you. We would love to give you a Bible. So if, if you would raise your hand in the air, if that's you, we'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. And uh, and I would just say this to you, if you take this today, uh, just keep it. Bring it home with you. We would love to give you a copy of God's Word uh, as we bring believe that God speaks to us through his word. And and that's why we're going to open it now and see what God has to say to us about the resurrection in particular. And so you can open up to the gospel of John um, in the New Testament there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right to chapter 19. Pastor Brian already read for us a section of what we're going to look at today in in verse 19 and 20, and then we're going to extend it a little bit further into chapter 20, but this is John's account of the empty tomb, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to take us back into our, our Easter theme, our garden theme. If you weren't here on Good Friday, just a couple of days ago, uh, we, we looked at the, the death of Jesus through the lens of the garden. And if you weren't here, don't worry about it. I'll bring you up to speed really quickly. And, uh, and, and all you need to know is this, is that gardens are a place of extreme significance in the Bible. It's, it's in gardens that some of the best things in the Bible happen. It's one of the best places that God has created. In fact, what we read about, if you were just to open your Bible and, and read Genesis chapter 1, get right into chapter 2, here's what you would find out, that that it was God who actually created the first garden. It was his idea. He created this beautiful garden and... He called it Eden. It was full of life and it was full of beauty. It was full of provision and protection, all the resources. It was full of plenty, everything humanity needed to have life and to thrive in life. But most of all, it had the presence of God. Man was placed in this garden to enjoy life, yes, but to enjoy life with God, in obedience to God, in worship of God. That is the very purpose of humanity. It is to know the God who created the entire universe. You weren't put here by accident. You were put here to know him. He places man there in the garden and he, he gives him a command to work and keep the garden. It's interesting that man's first occupation was as a gardener. I hate gardening. But for some reason, God God saw fit to make the first human being a gardener. And that would obviously extend the idea of working and keeping. Would, would mean that humanity would be responsible to take dominion of the earth, to cultivate it, to make it a place where life would thrive, and where God would be glorified in all things. Gardens are some of the best places in the Bible, but as we saw on Friday, gardens are also some of the worst places in the Bible. It's where some of the worst things happen in the Bible, and you don't get very far into the book of Genesis before you find out that there, in that first garden, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, they rebelled against God. They disobeyed God. He said, everything is yours to enjoy. You can can take it all, enjoy it all, eat from every tree except for this one And God tested the faith of Adam and the faithfulness of Adam. And in a moment of rebellion, one act of disobedience, the curse of sin and death fell upon humanity in the garden. And on Good Friday, we saw that Jesus went into another garden, a garden named Gethsemane. And that garden was a place of death where Jesus would fall to his face in prayer to God the Father and he would ask God the Father that if possible, this cup could be removed from him. The the idea of the cup was symbolic. He, He looked at this cup that was being held out to him by God and he looked into the depths of its poisonous liquid and what he saw in the depth of that cup Was the sin of all humanity. He saw all the the wickedness and evil of, of human beings all at once, all held in one cup that he must drink. He saw there in that cup also the wrath of God, the just punishment of God for the sins of humanity. And from that garden, Jesus faced that cup and he faced sin and he faced the wrath of God. And he said definitively, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he went from that garden, willingly he went to a cross where he died a a horrific death. He drank the cup right down to the very bottom. And in that garden, we are reminded that there had to be a testing of his faith and his faithfulness. But there must also be a triumph in the garden. There must be a victory in the garden. There was a battle for sure, but we must see the victory that takes place. And while the first garden would be first a place of life and then a place of death, we find here in this text another garden, but this garden would first be a place of death before it was a place of life. The first garden was the beginning of the first creation, and this garden here in our text today would be the beginning of a new creation, a new creation where God was creating a new humanity, and he's calling you to be a part of this new humanity and to take part of this new creation. This garden that we're going to read about in a minute is in many ways about the resurrection of Jesus. That's for sure. But I hope and pray that you will see that this garden here is also about you and it's about me. It's about our resurrection. And so I want to just show you simply three resurrection realities that matter for your life and for mine. The first is this, that in the garden, Jesus was prepared respectfully in love. We read about it in chapter 19, but it says, verse 28, after this, meaning after the death of Jesus, he had just been hanging upon the cross, and and right before this in the text, it tells us that they they made sure Jesus was dead. They went and broke the legs of the other uh, criminals who were hanging beside him on the cross, but when they got to Jesus, they, they saw that he was still dead, and so one of the soldiers thrust a spear into his side and blood and water poured out. He was most certainly dead. And so, after these things, we see that some disciples come to the forefront. Now, listen the reality is that a resurrection first needs a death, right? It's two sides of the same coin, so before we get into his life, we must again come face to face with his death. There are two disciples that are drawn to our attention in this passage, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and another man named Nicodemus. The text tells us that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. Nicodemus also was a disciple in hiding. He had come to Jesus in John chapter 3 under the cover of night for fear of the Jews, not wanting them to know that he was interested in the things of Jesus, that he was becoming a follower of Jesus. Joseph comes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. Now it's interesting because, according to Roman custom, the bodies of executed criminals were not buried, but they were left out for the vultures to devour. But Joseph goes and he asks Pilate for the body. And Pilate, you'll remember, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He tried to get the crowd to to release Jesus. And at the end of the day, in an act of extreme cowardice, he simply washed his hands and allowed the mob to rule while they crucified Jesus. So here he is now, certainly feeling a little bit, maybe a tinge of guilt. And so Joseph comes to him and asks for the body. And he willingly gives over the body of Jesus and Joseph asks for the body in order to give Jesus an honorable burial the preparation of the body showed great respect and great love the text tells us here that the preparation of this body involved a mixture of myrrh and aloes and notice the the weight of both of these it tells us very specifically 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes This is not the normal amount for a a common person like you or me who would have been buried at the time. In fact, all the commentators tell us that this amount is actually sufficient for a royal burial. There's something special about this man. There's something royal about this man. And yes, though he died as a common criminal, he would actually be buried as a respected and honored king. He's actually placed, the scriptures tell us, in the tomb of a rich man. Matthew tells us this, that he's actually placed in Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb. Joseph is obviously a rich man. And I want you to notice again what the text tells us in verse 41. Notice where they take him. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And again it says, and in the garden, a new tomb which no one had been laid. This is Joseph's tomb. It was cut specifically into the side of a rock for Joseph himself. But here he is, giving up his own grave for this man Jesus Likely not realizing at this point that Jesus was actually the one who took his place and died his death. And so how fitting is it that Jesus lays in this man's grave? And there's something about this man Jesus, about his death... That draws these two men out of their secret discipleship. That's what I want you to notice. John seems to be elevating that idea for us to consider. So the question is why? Well, they have witnessed something so profound about this man. Something that had this incredible impact on their soul. So much so, by the way, that they were willing to risk their esteemed position in the Jewish community their own reputation amongst their family and their friends, and yes, possibly even risk their own life to go and get the body of Jesus to give him this burial. And though they do not yet fully understand what they have seen, it has already begun to transform their fear into faith. What is it that they have seen? Well, simply put, they have seen the love of God. Yes, they had been struck by the life of Jesus it's almost certain that these men had watched Jesus live his life and they'd seen him love people like nobody else they'd ever seen. They heard the teachings flow from his lips about what it means to love God and to love one another and they'd seen his life model it so incredibly perfectly and yet what they have just witnessed at the cross took it to a whole new level Jesus himself said these words, Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. You see, the death of Jesus reveals the love of God. And these disciples, they, they treated the body of Jesus with this tender, sacrificial kind of love, because they had experienced in the life and death of Jesus, this tender, sacrificial love of the Savior. I had somebody ask me a couple weeks ago, I invited them to come out to our Easter services, and I asked if they'd ever attended a Good Friday service. they had actually never heard of it. They knew it was a holiday, but they, they didn't know why. And they said, so, like, what is it? So I said, well, it's kind of like a funeral. <laughs> it's awesome. You should come, <laughs> right? It's a day where we get together and and as Christians what we do is we reflect upon the death of Jesus Christ that he was horrifically nailed to a cross to suffer the sins of the world and the wrath of God and he looks at me and goes, well, why do you call it good? I'm like, that's a good question. It's a really good question. I said, the reason it's so good is because listen, Listen. The Bible says, though Jesus was killed by wicked, evil men, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And you see, it's so good. That's why I, I say so good. Because here on this day, we realize, listen, that we deserve to be p- punished for our sin. Every one of us is a sinner. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us has met the perfect standard of God's holiness. And as a result, we all deserve to suffer for our sins. God would be just and right. He's a holy God. He must punish sin. And we should receive all of that. But on this day, we see that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He, he loved us. Uh, you say, why did God do this? Why is it so good? Because here we see how much God loves humanity. He doesn't want us to die in our sin. He doesn't want us to live a purposeless, meaningless life apart from him. He wants us to know the truth that can set us free. That's why it's Good Friday. Because Jesus dies the death that we deserve to die. He paid the debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. That's the idea in the gospel. That's why Friday is such a big deal. I mean, imagine right now, imagine right now, someone came to you and said, I'm going to pay down the insurmountable mortgage debt you have accumulated, especially if you bought in the last five years. I'm just going to, isn't it interesting we call it debt forgiveness? It's gonna wipe it all clean. Or, or imagine somebody saved your life right from a from a, a car streaming towards you, and they, they dove and they 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 tackled you to the ground and you were spared. I mean, how would you feel toward that person? Or imagine, listen, imagine you were justly tried for crimes you committed and you were condemned to a life sentence in prison. And somebody came along and said, guess what? I'm not going to let you go to prison. I'm going to take the punishment. I'm taking the life sentence for you so you can go free. Or imagine, listen, even worse, it wasn't just a life sentence. It was a death sentence and someone said, listen, you deserve this. You committed the crimes. But I love you so much, I'm going to pay the ultimate price for you. I will die in your place so that you can not only be set free from prison, but that so you can live the life you were created to live. This is what Jesus did for human beings. He he hung on that cross and he died physically. Yes, he suffered and died because listen, the wages of sin is death. But more than that, he died a spiritual death where he hung and he suffered the just wrath of God. It was unleashed upon him, the full cup of God's wrath against all the sins of the world, and he took that cup and he drank it right down to the dregs and he declared on the cross with his final breath, "It is finished." And the death of Christ awakened something within these two men. They saw it. They didn't fully understand all of this yet. But something in them was awakened. And they seemed at last willing to identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And I just want to say to you today, it's never too late to follow Jesus. Jesus. It's never too late to follow Jesus. Maybe you've been hiding in the shadows. Maybe you've been wondering whether or not you're really a Christian. Maybe you've struggled to identify yourself as a Christian for fear of what other people in your life may think. It's never too late to follow Jesus. God is in the business of drawing people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And what is it that draws them out of the darkness? What is it that draws them out of secrecy into the public eye? It is this, his magnetic love and grace. It's emboldening, it's strengthening, it's purpose-giving, and it's life-transforming. And these men sensed that. God can do that with you. He wants to do that with you. If you will look on Christ's death and see in it his unmatched love for you. And the Bible says this, it's really fascinating because people struggle with this. Well, really, I mean, can God really love me with all of my sin and all of the, I'm not really lovable? Well, here's what Paul says. Paul says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what that means for you and for me. This is awesome news. It means we don't have to fix ourselves. It means we don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to get our lives in order before we come to Jesus Christ. He says, come to me as you are, with all of your brokenness, with all of your failures, with all of your sin, and I will make you new. Maybe you've held back for years. It's never too late to come to Jesus. You can move from fear to faith. You can love him because you have seen, listen, that he has first loved you. But his people will see not only his love, but they'll see his power. And in the garden, secondly, Jesus was powerfully raised to life. In chapter 20, which we've read already in the announcement time there, we realize or we see here that Mary Magdalene, she comes to the tomb early while it was still dark on the first day of the week. She sees that the stone is rolled away. And she rushes, she ran, it says in verse 2, back to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Uh, That's John, the author of this letter. She said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples, so Peter and John, that they, they run towards the tomb. Both of them, notice this, were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. I love this. They have a race to the tomb. John wants you to know that he got there first, Okay. He's not just telling us that to be prideful. Every detail in this story matters immensely. So why, why is John giving us this detail? He's not just concerned about you thinking he's faster than Peter. Peter was older anyways. In a humble, listen, roundabout kind of way, John is saying, listen, this is awesome. He was the first one in all the world to believe that Jesus had been risen from the dead. Well, how did he arrive at this conclusion so quickly? Well, when they arrive at the tomb on the first Easter morning, it wasn't quite empty. Did you catch that? The body of Jesus was gone but something was still there, the grave clothes, the linen cloths, he says in verse four, were lying there. Something about them so struck John, at least that he, he believed in the, the resurrection. The dead were wrapped, you see, by the, uh, around their bodies. So in the ancient world, in Jewish custom, They were wrapped, but the face and the the neck and the upper part of their shoulders were left bare. So when you think of the, the burial wrappings in the Jewish, from a Jewish perspective, don't think like an Egyptian mummy. Their body was wrapped and their arms were usually crossed like this across their body, but their shoulders and neck and face were exposed. And then what we know is this, that they would wrap their heads separately, almost like a turban. And this actually helps explain John's reaction at the tomb. You see, the apostle John, it says in 20, chapter 20, verse 8, he saw and he believed. The word saw there gives the implication. He saw with understanding. He picked up on something unique that had taken place. In other words, what he's saying is this is unusual. And it doesn't fit with the narrative that Mary has brought to them, thinking that maybe somebody stole the body. You know, it's often been thought, many people who deny the Bible suggest that the body of Jesus was simply stolen, that this was all some big hoax. It was all concocted by Jesus and his disciples. But you see, if some had stolen the body, it wouldn't look like this. That's what John's getting at or if he was revived, you know, maybe he didn't really die on the cross and he was just revived back to life, you know, the scene in the tomb wouldn't make sense. One commentator says this, here it seems that the body in some way disappeared from or passed through the clothes and left them lying as they were. That's the idea. John Stott, another commentator, says that the body was vaporized as it became something wonderful and new. John in other words he looks at these grave clothes and remember they're packed with 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes these spices and he's wrapped so tightly he's looking at the grave clothes and it appears that the body like everything is just as it would be if the body was still in there but the body's not there it hasn't been unwrapped in other words it would take a serious magician to get disappear from these cloths. But here's what he's seeing here. He's saying this, Peter, don't you see it? No one's done anything to the body. It's gone right through the grave clothes. Jesus is risen. He's alive. Again, John Stott says this, a glance at these grave clothes proved the reality and indicated the nature of the resurrection. Something supernatural had taken place. And in verse 9, it adds, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. In other words, here's here's what he's saying. They they didn't get that the scriptures of the Old Testament, the, the law, the writings, the prophets, that they held so dear as Jews, they didn't see yet. God had not opened their eyes to see how all of the scriptures were pointing to the reality that Jesus would die but rise from the grave. But you know what he is saying? He didn't quite understand the scriptures, but he understood what he was seeing with his own two eyes. One of the great historical evidences of Jesus' resurrection is the empty tomb. For John, as for all the early Christians, the resurrection of Jesus was the immutable fact upon which their faith was based. And their faith in large part depended on the testimony and transformed lives of those who had actually seen the resurrected Jesus. And if their eyewitness testimony is true, it actually has implications for every single person. It has implications for you and it has implications for me. Let me just give you four of them. If Jesus is actually alive, if he rose from the grave, if he conquered sin and death, here's what that means. It means he is who he says he is. Well, who did he claim to be? Here's who he claimed to be, God. He claimed to be the God of the universe, the creator of all things. And if Jesus stayed in the tomb, listen, it would be foolish to believe this claim. Paul says that we would be among all people to be pitied. But since he rose from the dead, it would be foolish not to believe this claim. It proves that what he said about himself is true. He is fully man, but he is fully God. Secondly, it means this, that if he is resurrected from the grave and he is who he claims to be, then what he says is authoritative and true. And it also means we should listen, by the way. You see, all religions are not created equal. Every religion offers a way of salvation, some kind of path to salvation, whatever that may be in the end, but they all, every one of them, conflicts with what Jesus says in the Bible, which simply means that they can't be true and Christianity be true at the same time. Jesus is the only religious leader who has risen from the dead. Every other religious leader, don't know if you got this yet, is still in their grave, Who do you wanna believe? I'll take the one who rose. Jesus said this, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said this, no one comes to the Father but through me. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Every other religion says you can save yourself. Christianity is the only religion that says you can't do it on your own. You can't muscle your way through, you're not wise enough, you're not good enough, you can't do enough. God must come and rescue you. Third, here's what it implies as well. If if he is God and he did rise from the grave, the resurrection proves that God will one day judge the world. Paul says it like this in Acts chapter 17, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, let me say it like this. The resurrection proves something very personal and significant to each one of us. Life, this life is not the end. This life is not it. There is an afterlife. There is an existence that follows this life. And it is an eternal existence. But listen, that existence, where you end up, is predicated upon what you do with Jesus in this life. You don't get a do-over. You don't get a second chance. Once you die, you will stand before Jesus Christ as the just judge of the universe. You will give an account for the life you lived, and most of all, you're going to give an account for what you did with Jesus Christ. And if all of us are honest, every one of us will have to admit that not one of us measures up to his perfect standard. We are all sinful, and therefore, every one of us would be deserving of his just condemnation and judgment. Finally, one more implication. If the resurrection is true, it means that you can be brought from death to life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only hope for humanity who is dead in their trespasses and sins, who deserve divine justice and punishment for our sins. You see, the power of the resurrection means this, that the power of sin and death has been overcome with victory that the penalty of judgment can actually be removed. You don't have to face what you deserve to face because of the one who faced it for you. He was a substitute for you. He took your place, he died your death. And that means that our sins can be forgiven and we can actually experience true and eternal life. So the question then is how, right? It's the million dollar. No, it's the eternal question. Well, that's what we see next. Finally, in the garden, Jesus was personally received as Lord. And here we see that Mary comes back to the tomb. Look at verse 11. It says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And what she sees is, 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 it must have just been astonishing. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And that seems like a silly question, right? Anybody who's ever lost anybody near and dear dear to them, they understand the pain of, of losing a loved one. But you see, that's the point of the question. She only thinks she's lost him. She can only see what's right in front of her eyes. She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She thinks somebody has stolen the body, and and I, I love this. She just wants to see him. She just wants to be near him. Even if it's just the body, she, she she's so loves Jesus. She so misses Jesus. She just wants to be near the body and, and she wants to honor him. And then verse 14, this is astounding. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Did you catch this? She turns and sees him, but does not see him. He speaks and she hears him, but she does not hear him. And it's possible that this has happened in your own life. Some trial has come into your life that seems to leave you hopeless and helpless. It takes the wind out of your sails, the breath out of your lungs. It knocks your feet clean from underneath you. It levels you and humiliates you and breaks you into pieces. And in the the depth of that moment of weakness, God is whispering to you in the pain. And he's saying, don't you see how much you need me? Or maybe everything is, is incredible in your life. Everything's been going just the way you planned. I don't think that's anybody, but... But maybe things are going relatively well. You've got everything you need in this life. Your family's doing well. You've got a you know, great you know, home. You've got money in the bank. And everything just seems to be moving along so well. And yet there's still this unquenchable ache in your soul. There's still something missing. As if God, as, as Solomon says, has put eternity into your heart. You know that there's this void It doesn't matter what you get and what you fill it with. It's still there. Maybe God has sent someone to speak to you. Maybe it's been years where God has put somebody in your life, a friend or a family member. They've cared for you in the hardest moments of your life and they've loved you in incredible and selfless and sacrificial ways. Maybe they've even sat you down and talked to you about Jesus Christ and shared the hope of the gospel. It's been God. Listen, it's been God speaking to you. It's been God trying to show you who he is. But you aren't really seeing that it's him. You aren't really hearing him. She thinks he's the gardener. You have to love the subtleties of scripture. The creation of humanity began in a garden. The first man, Adam, is a gardener. And she doesn't recognize that Jesus, the second Adam, is the beginning of a new creation starting in a new garden with a new gardener who has been tested and who she's about to find out has been triumphant tell me where you've laid him, she says, and I will take him away. And then I love this. Look at what it says in verse 15. Jesus said to her, or sorry, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, with one word, With the power of his word, the word who became flesh speaks forth a word, and just like the creation account where the word of God brought all life into existence, the shepherd called his sheep by name, and she recognized his voice. So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. She turns towards him, and look what she says. Rabboni, which means teacher. She speaks in Aramaic. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. She cries out, Rabboni. I love this. This is the only place other than one occasion in Mark chapter 10 where somebody calls Jesus Rabboni, where blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, blind, think about this, blind Bartimaeus says to Jesus, Rabboni, I want to see. And as he did for him, Jesus does for Mary, the teacher, the rabbi, the king of kings and Lord of lords opens her eyes to see she hears, she sees, and she comes to life because, listen, this is the key, because she believes, she receives him, and she clings to him physically in this moment with great joy. I mean, so much so that Jesus says, listen, we've got work to do. You got to let me go at some point. You got to go back and tell everybody else what you've seen. Go back, tell the disciples. And that's exactly what she does. She runs back and finds the disciples and wants to declare this simple message. But I love that the first thing she says, we see it here in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, look at this, I have seen the Lord. Jesus would appear to his disciples following this in the rest of chapter 20. And in the next section, he would show up to them and they would see the Lord too in the the word of God tells us that he would breathe on them and commission them into his service. The, the breath is supposed to bring you back again to this idea of creation. Do you remember when God created the first man, Adam, when he brought him to life? He makes him out of the dust of the ground and then he stoops down and he breathes into his nostrils. Life comes from God. And what God is saying is here, right now, through Jesus Christ, you can have new life. You can have resurrection life life, you can step out of the grave into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You must see the Lord. You must hear his voice. This is how you come from death to life today. You must see the Lord in all of his beauty and power. You must hear his voice. And I want you to hear this. Just like he called Mary by name, do you know that your king, the creator of this universe, he knows you by name. And he calls you by name. But you have a responsibility to receive him personally as your Lord. Listen, the Bible declares that Jesus is Lord of all. He is. He's just by by nature of his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is ruling right now at the right hand of the Father. Amen? Amen. Okay, but here's the big question. Is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you seen the depth of your sin? Have you seen that you can't save yourself? Have you seen that there's more to your existence than just this life and just the things you can get from this world? Have you seen that God created you for himself and that through Jesus Christ, even today, listen, he wants to give you new life in him? Paul says this in Romans 10, 9. You say, How do I do this? It's so simple. If you've heard this message today, listen to what Paul says. If you confess with your mouth, listen, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hear his voice calling your name today. Look to him and live. Don't wait. Don't hide. Don't fear. By faith, receive him today and live forever with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. And we thank you. Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords God, I pray for all of those who are here today who have not received you as their Lord and King. God, I ask today, Lord, now even, would you draw them by your love to the grace of the gospel? God, that they would believe today that you came from heaven to earth, that you died in their place, that you took their sin and their shame, that they would believe that you rose victoriously on the third day God, that you have triumphed over sin and death, that you and you alone can forgive sins and give new life to all who by faith trust in you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. Jesus, you and you alone are the King of kings. Jesus, you are worthy of our highest praise. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, receive our praise now from hearts, Lord, that are filled with gratitude and joy for all that you are and all that you've done. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.